you're not unique in not thinking about it. It's one, it's one of the things that I keep banging my head against the wall. I mean, it's why we call ourselves cult is we don't want to have customers. We want to have cult-like followers, we, which is the different customers buy, but cult followers buy in. And it's so much better. And yet um, the majority, and when I say the majority, I mean like 90% of marketing departments and marketing dollars are spent on either awareness under this false belief Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, I've got Chris Neeland. Chris, thanks for making time. Oh, my pleasure. So um, for people who don't know about the gathering or, or cult or um, uh, communo, can, can you give people just the quick elevator pitch on the different things you do? Yeah, so um, probably let's start from the beginning. So I moved to Canada 10 years ago and uh, started a, an audience engagement firm called Folk Collective. Um, we, we intentionally use the word audience engagement firm because nobody knows what that means. And uh, what we were trying to do is not be an ad agency and not be a marketing consultant. Um, but we try to um, kind of, we, we were subscribed to this methodology called Blue Ocean uh, back in the day where you kind of take two known entities and create a third. And so as an audience engagement firm, we advise uh, businesses on their marketing strategies and ways to boost engagement with customers, prospects, or staff. Um, we needed to have some IP. We needed to have a point of view that differentiated ourselves and added values. We began the study of what we called at the time cults and cult brands. Um, we were kind of fascinated by businesses that were enjoying not just financial success, but sort of cultural significance. And um, in many cases, they were doing so without, um, well, with below average spend on advertising, below average use of markdowns. And I think mass media and markdowns have become the default tools of brand leaders uh, across North America, much to um, the detriment of their brands. And so we were like, wow, there, there's, there are people out here doing better things, achieving better results and spending less money doing it while also feeling more professionally stimulated and filled it just seemed like the best case scenario but um, they just weren't the people that were getting ad agency awards they weren't doing Super Bowl commercials they weren't part of that lexicon of that industry so we decided to devote our practice to both decoding how cult brands you know what they believe and how they behave as well as showcasing and celebrating them because we think these are brand leaders that are doing the best marketing but have maybe not received the accolades of the rest recognition they deserve from the marketing industry. So uh, we birthed uh, a, an award show and a conference called The Gathering uh, eight years ago that has uh, exceeded all of our hopes and dreams and has become uh, a really interesting industry event that a thousand people now try to get into every year uh, in the Rocky Mountains uh, 
of uh, Canada. And, um, and then one of the other things that we just sort of discovered along the way in trying to grow and service our clients was that one of the fallacies of professional service providers is their, um, their belief that your size of your firm dictates the success of your firm. And that as you want to grow and get bigger, you have to uh, hire more and more people. Uh, so Communo became this kind of happy accident, this blessing off to the side where I kind of tell people it's like Slack. The people that invented Slack created a, an operating tool and a productivity tool for themselves that ended up becoming more popular than the business that they actually had that used Slack. Similarly, Communo was an operating model, access to a real-time contingent workers that Colt used that just kind of exploded and is really exploding now in the wake of COVID and uh, t- you know, 20, 25 million unemployed. We're, we're, we're adding hundreds of new Communo members every day of uh, marketing, creative, digital uh, professionals that have decided decided that full-time employment or working uh, for ad agencies is no longer where they want to go with their careers. So they uh, joined Communo. So they're all kind of related to each other, but they're all three separate businesses, three separate P&Ls, three different uh, leadership teams. And the only commonality is that my business partner and I are the founders of all three. I love it. Well, you know, I've seen The Gathering, which, you know, before I knew much about it, it just seemed like this like great cool kids club at the Banff Springs Hotel. You know, it felt like, you know, I'm outside of Park City here. So once a year we get everybody showing up for Sundance and all these people who don't normally hang out in the mountains come and tell us how beautiful the mountains are, right? I feel like yeah. in a way you've, you've basically created a version of that in Banff just uh, around a different subject matter. Um, I, I'm interested when you think about, um, you know, the, these different interests you have and all these folks that you you get to the conference and that you get to work with um, in your consulting work. Well, I guess we should back up. Why don't you just tell some of these people, like, why don't you tell folks some of your favorite people that you've had to the gathering or that you guys have given awards to? The gathering, um, it's had a couple of fun surprises. And when I think about uh, your, your, the theme of your podcast and high achievers, I, I don't personally associate myself with being a high achiever, but I've certainly enjoyed being in the company of, of high achievers. And the gathering was no exception. Uh, it kind of became this um, excuse for some of our professional role models to come and, sh- and share their stories stories. Um, you know, I go all the way back to year one. I remember um, Red Bull was uh, one of the recipients of this sort of, you know, like our version of a Lifetime Achievement Award. Uh, this, uh, this SVP named Aaron Hozak was the, the, uh, the person that came. And Red Bull has been notoriously shy or quiet, which is kind of funny when you think about some of the mystique around the brand being this X Games and this sort of living a life of extreme. Uh, as a company culture, they're actually remarkably quiet and humble and they're privately run and they don't typically participate in these sorts of things. And so it was a, it was a great feather in our cap for them to decide that the gathering would be one of the few exceptions that they would make to their publicity rule. And, uh, and this was on the heels of them dropping uh, Felix out of space, which was sort of, I think, the campaign of the year that year. And that wasn't why we were honoring them. The gathering, like I said, is more of a lifetime achievement award. You don't have to have done something you know, as remarkable. As a, as you know, dropping somebody from the stratosphere to be to be honored, but that sort of I think set the tone that the gathering was a place where uh, some interesting stories are being told and some interesting people are showing up. I also remember that year, um, the CMO from Harley Davidson was there and he explained to the audience that he only spends fifteen percent of his annual marketing budget on acquisition. 
the 85% goes towards retention and, and growing his existing customer base. And there was like an audible gasp in the crowd because <laughs> nobody was spending their, their marketing budget that way. And yet the point is, if you want to achieve the kind of adoration that Harley Davidson has, and you know, they're sort of the quintessential, they're, you know, they're, they're the second most tattooed thing besides mom uh, on people's body is the Harley Davidson shield. And so um, people are like, oh, wow, maybe we are doing this wrong. Maybe we have gotten distracted by the shiny um, and, and an overemphasis on acquisition based. And then through the years, I mean, I've had, uh, I remember one year, it was the first year we kind of did um, uh, the format was uh, room A or room B. And you had the Sophie's choice of where are you going to go? And in room A was Disney and in room B was Nintendo. And we were joking about sort of like Mickey Mouse versus Mario and you have to pick your allegiance of which uh, brand do you uh, have a higher affinity for. I remember Dana White coming from UFC and um, talking about, you know, if, if a football game was in that corner and a basketball game was in that corner and a tennis match is over here and I yell fight because two guys in the middle of that are going at it. Everybody's turning around to you know, <laughs> stop watching their sport to watch the fight. And that's how he just, he knew the, 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 uh, the Neanderthal, you know, element of, of what UFC really kind of stood for. And you think about an amazing brand. I remember when UFC came out, it was outlawed in every place except Atlantic City and Vegas. Like 49 or 48 states wouldn't even let it happen. So for it to become such a mainstream sport now is really just a remarkable uh, accomplishment. Um, and then, you know, all the way up to, um, I remember the, the head of Greenpeace spoke a few years ago, and we were talking about all these cult brands and all these examples, that, these proof points of how these brands are beloved. And she gets up there and says, you know what, I, without any disrespect to you other brands, the fans of my brand go to jail for 20 years. And it was like this, <laughs> oh snap moment of you know Greenpeace <laughs> has a higher purpose and you know they certainly have unconventional tactics but if you believe in something so much that you're willing to go to jail for it uh, that's a heightened level of brand uh, buy-in uh, and then and then I remember just two years ago we did our first celebrity so we honored Tony Hawk and it was a great example of sort of transcending out of the commercial corporate application of corp branding into the persona and we get celebrity but if you think about real cult branding and how, how you monetize the brand the way tony hawk went from skating to video games to clothing lines to media and now all the way to where skating is going to be an olympic sport and truly sort of legitimizing uh the the craft of, of skateboarding um it's just really fun so you know i'm uh, I'm certain I'm one of the founders of the gathering, but I'm also just its biggest fan. And I show up to that event every year with a, with a clean notebook and just take pages and pages of notes because uh, I, I know that there's a lot of room for improvement for myself, for, uh, for agency practitioners and for brand leaders around the world. You know, it's funny that you chose Tony first there. Um, you know, I'm turning 40 this year. But I, I spent my youth up in your neck of the woods in Alberta, skateboarding and snowboarding, right? And this year, we were at the Park City opening of Woodward, which is like, for people who don't know, it's kind of like a, this amazing camp, but for action sports with trampolines and, you know, ramps into 
big foam pits and stuff that only the pros usually get to do. And Tony was there at the grand opening. And I don't know if my 14 year olds more, my 14 year old was more excited to get Tony to sign a skateboard. If I was more excited to get Tony to sign his skateboard, you know? Yeah, no, he was, he was a very special and, you know, and part of it too, is when you do these things and you invite them to come, you never know what you're really going to get. You know, not all of them, most global CMOs or CEOs aren't public speakers and, uh, sometimes it's not as polished as if you just, you know, we're going to a TED conference, for example. But Tony was so gracious and he stuck around for two days. He actually went hella skiing uh, out in Banff on one of the mornings. And uh, he, he was just so approachable. Uh, it was it was a real highlight for us. Yeah, no kidding. Well, you know, I, I've been thinking about the ways we're trying to follow the <laughs> trying to follow your advice and what you guys promote. And for anybody who, who hasn't checked out Chris's stuff, really, you've got to go to cultgathering.com. Um, go go to his YouTube channel, watch the videos. I can't recommend this stuff enough, everyone. But um, I think about, you know, you talked about the blue ocean stuff, right? And I think we're in the middle of trying to start this new real estate investment trust. Um, we're, our company, Greystoke Investments, we're just launching, is going to go try and buy some of these buildings when they go on sale this summer, right? Big apartment buildings. And I just thought I, you know, going head to head with the big guys, that's, that's a tough game, you know? And so I, what we thought of is like, what if we didn't compete with them trying to go to pension funds and all these people for the money? What if we went to like regular entrepreneurs, like, you know, millionaire business owner who Wall Street is never going to have a one-on-one with? And what if instead of just going head to head with the other funds, what if we like genuinely tried to help them grow their businesses? And like when I kind of took years off of finance and went into management consulting, what if we did that like for free for these entrepreneurs and like try to help them make enough money to buy passive income from us, right? And I think something that was maybe a bit of a tweak for me watching a YouTube video that you had come out recently was this idea of spending time helping people feel like insiders. And I just thought about, I guess it just kind of struck me of like, yeah, with, with all these folks, we're going to try and, we're going to try and help them make more money and get get them access to, you know, the, the thought leaders that have inspired us and try to create support groups and, and like, not just tell them what to do, but like literally hold their hand, like we have with our traditional consulting clients, except not charge them for it, you know, just hope they invest with us later kind of thing. When you were talking about helping people feel like an insider, it was like, it just made me realize we have not spent enough time thinking about that. Um, can you, can you talk more about that concept? Yeah, for sure. I think, I mean, you're not unique in not thinking about it. It's one, it's one of the things that I keep banging my head against the wall. I mean, it's why we call ourselves cult is we don't want to have customers. We want to have cult-like followers, we, which is the different customers buy, but cult followers buy in and it's so much better. And yet um, the majority, and when I say the majority, I mean like 90% of marketing departments and marketing dollars are spent on either awareness under this false belief that um, that's going to somehow translate into meaningful revenue. So um, they, and awareness is most easily achieved through paid media. So you say, you see, you know, um, I forget the number now, it's something like $200 billion is spent on paid media. 
And all this marketing discipline is really around just optimizing that spend versus even asking if that spend is necessary. I, I sometimes joke, like if you go to the bar and you want to hit on a girl and you say, so do you want to go out with me on Thursday or Friday? <laughs> you know, you're, there's this perception of choice, but there's this assumption that we're going out and all you get to do is pick which day we're going, as opposed to what if she doesn't even want to date me at all, right? So how, what if people just opt out of mass media altogether. So rather than trying to optimize these false models that are trying to decide should it be radio or print or billboard or whatever digital, it should be like, well, what, what the model isn't considering is what if you don't do any of that stuff? And so uh, I don't subscribe to the idea that awareness is that important. And then secondly, they spend time on acquisition, trying to get new customers. And then frequently that requires this overinvestment in promotions and in trial incentives Again, under the false belief that if they just tried me, then they'd be sure to come back. Well, you know what? We have that case study. It's called Groupon, and it burned through billions of dollars of shareholder equity because they didn't come back. They only came back to that carpet cleaner or that car detailer or that dog walking service if you continue to bribe them with you know, unsustainably rich offers. So as a craft, as an industry, we somehow think that awareness or acquisition is the objective of a great brand or of great marketing. So we've introduced the third A, which is advocacy, and said, no, 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 what if you actually said, we're gonna use our marketing might, our resources, our creativity to create advocates, then that would be like moving the goalpost 100 meters down the, the field. It's like, well, you can't have an, ad, an advocate that doesn't know you. So clearly you have to have some element of awareness. You can't have an advocate that hasn't tried you. So clearly there'll be some element of acquisition, but then there's this wonderful extra benefit is if you have an advocate, they'll remain more loyal to you. They'll buy more product more often. They'll buy at higher margin and they become a, a non-commissioned salesperson. They refer others to you. And the minute you can get into that element of referral marketing and word of mouth marketing, now you're really cooking gas. And so you know, becoming an insider is one of many tactics that, that brands could employ to say, I'm going to make this person so in love with me that they're going to become an advocate and, uh, and you know, access to information, um, valuing people beyond just their dollars, but their voice, their input, their contribution uh, are all little tricks of the trade that we use to say that that's what marketing done well really starts to look and smell like. No, I love it. I, I'm just thinking, you know, so... Let's say that, you know, with, with Greystoke, we can create our thousand true, true fans. You know, these business owners, we're, you know, we're really trying to get into their lives and we're really genuinely helping them, right? And we're trying to tell them, you need to do what Chris says. You need to help your customers feel like insiders. And I guess a first thought that I have is, what, what do we tell people or what would you advise people to say, yeah, but I'm not cool like Red Bull. Like, I'm not, I'm not Volcom. I'm not Porsche. You know, my, my business feels boring. What, what, do you, what advice would you have for a concern someone has like that? There are absolutely boring businesses. Um, I think of utilities comes to mind. Um, I think of bottled water, you know, uh, uh, tire sales. If you have decided that you're going to devote your career to a super boring business and you're going to get to your stimulation at the bowling league after work as opposed to being excited about something you're doing at work, 
That's totally your prerogative. And you would be a fool to try to create a cult following because you're going to ask people to care about your business more than you do. And that's not likely to happen. Mm. Um, so I, I don't subscribe to the fact that every business has cult-like potential. Um, I do believe that there are far more exciting businesses that are selling themselves way too short because they're not boring. They just don't have the creativity or the courage required to become sexy. Uh, and I think of something like Wawa, which is this regional gas station chain in the in the Pennsylvania area. And it's like they're a gas station. And a lot of gas stations have just decided we're going to be boring. And if you're going to be boring, you know how you're going to win? You're going to be the cheapest or the easiest to access. You're going to become Walmart. Walmart is boring. Uh, and so uh, you get that's absolutely a, a strategy. <laughs> it's not anything I would ever want to spend my life doing. I think life's too short to be uh, stuck in a, in a race where the only reason why somebody buys you is because you're cheap or easy. Um, you can start to look at what Wawa did, which says, we're going to be special. And they become, they've become a cult brand. They've become a part of the community. They've got the best sandwiches, the best um, uh, coffee voted in the, in the region. They've, they're 40% of their workforce are millionaires because of this employee stock option purchase program that they've devoted, where they're going to have this exceptional culture. So they just refused to be boring, and they're, they're, then they said, okay, I'm going to use my uh, creativity or my courage to uh, overcome that obstacle. I hear it a lot more on the B2B side. Again, I think B2B marketers are typically not attracting very bright, it sounds, it sounds harsh, but like the, the best and brightest from MBA schools are oftentimes wanting to go to B2C brands because they have bigger budgets or they want to do things that are sexier. Uh, I think all the data that I've ever seen suggests that there's more similarities to B2B than to B2C than dissimilarities. The difference is in the creativity and the courageousness of the C-suite and how commoditized are they making their industry come across and seen. So I, I you know, I, I sometimes like to fight the fight and convince the CEO that he's actually far more, this company's far more special than he's giving it credit for. But the reality is I shouldn't be the cheerleader. You should have a brand leader that is super excited about what they're doing and they find ways to get other people excited. We have a supply chain company out of Salt Lake that at first blush is wildly unsexy. And yet when you talk to their executives, you would think that they were, you know, inventing the light bulb or that they were doing, you know, <laughs> that they were Tesla. Uh, we, we have a, a, a pretty uh, unsexy commercial development co uh, company client out of Toronto who their CEO says, I want to be the Apple of our industry. And, you know, Apple meaning Steve Jobs, Apple, like they just want to become special. So they're going to versus uh, looking for excuses to be pedestrian. Well, I think this is, I, I want to talk more about this. I think it's a great subject for us to talk in part two of the interview. Um, maybe to end part one, a question I've really liked asking guests lately is, you know, you obviously get to hang out with a lot of the cool kids in life, as far as I'm concerned, people from GoPro and Porsche and all these folks, brands that I like, right? Um, you get interviewed, you get to talk a lot. What What's something that you feel like people don't ask you enough or that you wish people asked you more often? Um, I think the, the thing that people don't really seem to understand is that they judge people more by their accomplishments than by their character. And one of the things that has been the most pleasant surprise is as, as I've studied the most beloved brands in the world, the people leading them are some of the most gracious, generous, and kind people I've ever met. 
And I think, you know, I think that the Steve Jobs tyranny example is the gross exception, uh, not the rule. I, I can, I, you know, I, I, one of my jobs every spring is to start the evaluation process to pick the next year's winners. And if I talk to a brand leader for 10 minutes, even before we get into the scorecard, even before we get into the nuts and bolts, just by how they treat me and this process, I can almost decide if they're going to be a cult brand or not. Uh, because it's, you know, it's the pricks and the jerks and the, uh, the assholes, pardon my French, that, that are overcompensating, that never build businesses that, uh, that people fall in love with. Never is the wrong word. Rarely build businesses that people fall in love with. And if you want to know why Levi's is special, or if you want to know why Porsche is special, or why the LA Lakers are the most, you know, successful uh, sports franchise, you just need to look at the character of the people that are running them, and you're going to see something that can't be taught. You're just going to find good people doing the right thing for the right reasons. I love it. Well, let's talk more about that on part two of the interview. Everybody, please tune in for part two. We're going to keep asking Chris what, what he's learned from these years of focusing on this subject. Thanks so much.